1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. More than two years ago, Canada arrested an executive of Huawei, a Chinese telecoms giant. In what seems like retribution, China then detained two Canadian citizens. We ask how this slow-rolling hostage diplomacy might be resolved. And it's hard to put a value on digital media, easily copied and almost free to distribute. But thanks to so-called non-fungible tokens, a price can be found for everything from film clips to tweets, and that might have big benefits for artists. First up, though. As of now, 19 European countries have halted or restricted the use of Oxford-AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine. The suspensions were first set in motion by reports from Norway of four cases of blood clotting in people who had received the jab. Yesterday, Germany joined the list, saying it's found a noticeable increase in cases of a particular kind of clot found in the brain. Europe's vaccination program was already off to a worryingly slow start, and another wave of infections seems to be building. On Monday, Italy imposed new lockdown restrictions.
2: <inaudible>
1: Prime Minister Mario Draghi harked back to the horrors of last spring, calling the new measures appropriate and
2: proportionate.
1: The European Medicines Agency met with the World Health Organization yesterday to discuss safety and reiterated that it's firmly convinced that the vaccine's benefits outweigh any risks. But not everyone is reassured, and with case numbers ticking up in countries across Europe, worries about the AstraZeneca vaccine come at a terrible time. It puts citizens in mind of what is, in all likelihood, a false choice between the safety of the vaccine and the safety of being vaccinated. That, in turn, puts regulators in a bind, but is showing an abundance of caution by halting the vaccine's use, even temporarily, create more trust in the inoculation effort or less?
3: The message coming out from all the regulators is that the AstraZeneca vaccine is safe to use.
1: Tim Cross is our technology editor.
3: And I think the way you have to think about this whole series of events is to bear in mind the difference between correlation and causation. So vaccines are medicines that are designed to be given to millions and millions of people. And just because some of those people then go on to have various kinds of of medical events, they have heart attacks or they have clots or they have strokes or, you know, maybe they get hit by a bus, doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine caused them. Some number of people are going to have clots or strokes or heart attacks or be run down by buses anyway, just because this is the kind of thing that happens hundreds of times a day. The question that the regulators have to get to the bottom of is, are we seeing more of these things than we would otherwise expect? And if we are, is it the vaccine that's causing them?
1: So on that specific question, then, of determining whether these blood clots are happening more commonly among vaccine recipients than in a general population, what do the data say so far?
3: So far, it looks like the answer to that is no, they're not. When it comes just to blood clots, there's not really any suggestion that we're seeing these things at a rate any higher than we would expect. There is, though, a wrinkle, and the wrinkle comes from Germany and I think also Norway, where regulators there have said what they have seen is a, quote, noticeable increase in a particular kind of very rare blood clot that happens in the brain. And they're saying these may be happening at a rate slightly above what you'd ordinarily expect. But on the other hand, there's the case of Britain, which has at this point vaccinated over a third of its population and therefore has given out many more doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine than Germany has. They, as far as we can tell, haven't seen any kind of similar pattern, and that's using a much larger data set.
1: So why the discrepancy? Why would that be showing up in Germany and not in Britain?
3: There are several ways to unpick this. One is that this particular kind of blood clot, we don't actually have a good estimate for how common it is. These rare diseases, just by definition, it's kind of hard to get a good sense of how common they are because hardly anyone gets them. One or two extra cases change the percentage numbers by quite a lot. The other thing that might just be happening is fluke. Averages aren't absolute. Occasionally you see unusual things, say a town in which two people have won the lottery within a couple of weeks of each other. It doesn't happen often. But it does happen. So there are ways to reconcile the worries in Germany with the lack of worries in the UK, I think.
1: But even with that question left unresolved, the the regulators still seem convinced that the vaccine is safe.
3: Yes, so the European Medicines Agency, which is the EU's overarching medical regulator, they've said very firmly that they think the vaccine's safe. Even the national regulators that have done this temporary pause are saying they're acting out of an abundance of caution. And you can look at data from earlier on in this process, the clinical trials that we used to assess the vaccine. What they did there that you kind of can't do when you're actually using this thing in the wild, as it were, is a placebo-controlled trial. So they give the vaccine to some people in the trial and they give a dummy jab to other people in the trial. And in fact, the number of people in those trials who reported serious side effects was actually slightly higher in the people who got nothing at all who got the dummy jab than it was in people who got the real one and that kind of hammers home this point that people get ill things go wrong with their bodies but you can't therefore say that any particular medicine they've just had has necessarily caused it because we had more serious adverse effects among a group of people who were given nothing an injection full of water than among a group of people who were given the actual vaccine
1: But in the face of reports of a particularly serious blood clot, I mean, the the regulators are then kind of hamstrung, right? They have to respond to what appears, at least in the numbers, to be a a real risk.
3: Yes, and this is what they've said. They've said, we want to be transparent, we want to be honest, we want to dot every I, cross every T, look under every stone. And I think, actually, if you zoom out a bit, the regulators have quite a sort of awkward tightrope to walk here because the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular has this political cloud hanging over it, particularly in the EU. There was a big row in January when AstraZeneca said it wouldn't be able to supply as many doses as it had hoped. We then had this report in the German newspaper, totally unfounded, that said the vaccine's not effective in those who are older than 65, which it is. Emmanuel Macron even came out and repeated the same line, although he later wrote back. And I think you then get to this very difficult question of trust, because... All the immunology and statistics we've been talking about is only one part of a vaccine program. The other part is trust.
1: In the sense that that all of this then will play into the wider question of of vaccine hesitancy.
3: Yes, exactly, which is already quite high in some European countries. And you can see it going either way, right? On the one hand, maybe if they take this ultra-cautious approach, people will think, well, they're checking everything. They're being as open as possible, so I'll trust them. On the other hand, you could see people saying, well, I keep hearing about the AstraZeneca vaccine in the news, and now they've suspended rolling it out. What's going on here? Should I trust this thing? It's very hard to know which is the right answer. The only thing we do know, slightly depressingly, is that history suggests that once these doubts get established, they can be very, very hard to shift. And of course, the biggest vaccine conspiracy theory of them all, the MMR vaccine and autism, that got started from a single scientific paper that listed a couple of anecdotal correlations As soon as people looked at the information, the idea that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism was disproven. It's been disproven many times since. And yet, no matter how many times that's said, the idea that this vaccine causes autism still floats out there as unkillable conspiracy theory.
1: And so the danger of that same sort of thing playing out is also playing out as numbers seem to be rising again in Europe. There's talk of a third wave. I mean, It is again or still a, a balance of risks.
3: It's always a balance of risks. And at this point about the third wave, we're seeing COVID cases rising in, in several European countries. The biggest picture point of all is that we know that one of the adverse effects, if you like, one of the sort of, quote, side effects of being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19 is death and that it happens in something on the order of 1% of cases. So you really have to look at this thing as a sort of balance of risk. Do you accept a very small and in all probability non-existent risk of blood clots, or do you go with a much higher and very certain risk of being killed by a pandemic virus?
1: Thanks very much for your time, Tim. Thanks, Jason. For a longer look at how COVID vaccines are transforming science and politics, listen to The Jab on Economist Radio. This week's episode features the husband and wife team behind the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. You'll find a new episode of The Jab every Monday in the collections of your preferred podcast purveyor.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy, Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In December 2018, Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of the Chinese telecom giant Huawei, became internationally known she was detained in Canada on charges of violating American sanctions against Iran.
2: We do know that Meng Wanzhou uh, was arrested on December the 1st uh, in Vancouver. Chinese officials have labelled her arrest as, quote, extremely nasty... ...and they're calling for her immediate release... uh, ...or they warn that Canada will face consequences.
4: Canada's arrest of one of the highest ranking executives at Huawei... ...has placed the country in the middle of a complicated dispute between the US and China.
1: This week, she's back in court in Vancouver, maintaining her innocence and continuing to fight attempts to extradite her to America. But Ms. Meng is not the only person to have been caught up in the international tussle.
2: Michael Kovrig is a former Canadian diplomat who went on to work with International Crisis Group. Michael Spavor is a businessman who ran tours into North Korea.
1: Gotti Epstein is The Economist's China affairs editor.
2: And they were detained in China just days after Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Canada and held for extradition to the U.S.
1: So how did they get in in the middle of this spat?
2: Well, as Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, puts it, they are two, quote-unquote, random Canadians that China has chosen to hold hostage until the case of Meng Wanzhou is resolved and she is freed and sent back to China, it's a case of hostage diplomacy. They're accused of espionage, which is, you know, a kind of a pretty standard way for China to detain a foreigner that they want to detain. In this case, you know, stealing sensitive Chinese intelligence, endangering Chinese national security. But it's pretty clear that these charges are purely about the case of Ms. Meng in Canada, and clearly a case of retaliation. China has never explicitly admitted that there's a link between the two Michaels, uh, as they're known in Canada, and the case of Ms. Meng. But it's pretty obvious for reading between the lines. They're not trying to hide that there's a link here.
1: You've used the word hostage, though. I mean, how are they being
2: treated? Uh, Well, they're in prison. The Michaels have been held for more than 800 days now. They get consular visits. The Canadian ambassador himself sits in. And Michael Kovrig, when he has his visits, he asks for books to read. He's reading a lot of books while he is in his cell. And in January, he asked for, among other books, The Trial by Franz Kafka, which uh, I think suggests kind of how he feels about his predicament up until this point.
1: Well, how does the Canadian government feel about his predicament? I mean, 800 days is really quite some time.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's been a real conundrum for the Canadian government because Justin Trudeau doesn't want to release Ms. Meng just to get the two Michaels back. Uh,
1: If countries around the world, including China, realize that by arbitrarily arresting random Canadians, they can get what they want out of Canada politically, well, that makes an awful lot more Canadians who travel around the world vulnerable to that kind of pressure.
2: So he has uh, refused to do that, and, and he was asked to do that by some Canadian ex-ministers and diplomats in, in, during this entire process. There's been pressure on him from both sides. Trudeau has been criticized for not retaliating, for instance, against punitive trade actions that China also took after the Meng Wanzhou detention. Uh, they cut off purchases of Canadian canola, beef, pork, soy, that cost Canada billions of dollars in, in exports. It's really a difficult situation. He's either being accused of being way too soft on China or, or for being heartless, uh, for not being pragmatic enough. He's taking a lot of fire for this situation, which has now dragged on for well over two years.
1: Well, how is Canada dealing with their, their reciprocal
2: detainee then, Ms. Meng? She lives in comfort. She's got, you know, mansion in Vancouver she can go around town doing shopping trips. She can take appointments. She, her family has visited her. She's under a very loose form of house arrest. Her extradition proceeding is in court. If it's decided that she should be extradited to the U.S., then she can appeal that decision, and that would take years longer.
1: And so where does that leave, then, this, this sort of standoff between the two and, indeed, what happens with the two Michaels in the meantime?
2: This can either run the legal course, the normal judicial course, unless for some reason the courts in Canada and the Canadian Minister of Justice rule this year that she should be let go and the two Michaels would presumably be released. But the other way that this could get resolved is politically. And since Trudeau has already indicated he's not going to intervene, really the only option here, the only person who has the power to bring this to a resolution is Joe Biden, or at least his Justice Department. Human beings are not bartering chips. You know, we're gonna work together until we get their safe return. Canada and the United States will stand together against abuse
1: of- And how how would that work? How, How could the Biden administration make a difference here?
2: So they're the ones who want Meng Wanzhou extradited. And the Justice Department, even under Trump, was negotiating with Huawei and with Meng Wanzhou for a resolution in this case. That was reported by the Wall Street Journal in December. Now, those negotiations came to naught. Trump left and the Justice Department has new leadership. And it's possible that the negotiations could begin anew at any time. And we don't know why the negotiations fell apart under Trump, but it's possible that perhaps on the Chinese side, they feel they can work with Biden's Justice Department or or trust the outcome, that this case could get resolved. And which of those possibilities do you think is the most likely? It's tricky because I think, you know, the Biden administration doesn't want to be seen as weak on China. And so they would be sensitive to any perception that a deal is being struck here. But I I could absolutely see the Justice Department, in the normal course of their work, negotiating a resolution in this case. And I could see Meng Wanzhou uh, paying a fine and going back to China this year. I could see that happening and I could see the two Michaels Uh, Returning to Canada this year I think it's possible Gotti, thank you very much for your time Great to be with you as always, Jason
1: Last week, the previously little-known artist Mike Winkleman, better known as Beeple Sold one of his works for more than 69 million dollars
2: it's like
0: a an unfathomable number, to be quite honest. It's just crazy.
1: It's a huge collage of images, made one per day over 13 years.
0: The work is a giant compilation of 5,000 different individual days.
1: It's an impressive piece of work. But what caught the eye of those beyond the art world is how the piece was sold. It was bought by a cryptocurrency investor who goes by a pseudonym and who naturally paid in the cryptocurrency Ether. But he did so using a new payment structure that could reshape the art market.
4: So the Beeple work was sold as a non-fungible token. It's the kind of acronym and phrase non-fungible token, which doesn't tell you an awful lot about what it is.
1: Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor.
4: So an NFT is a secure blockchain-based record that represents pieces of digital media, what you're getting essentially is low-cost authentication of digital assets.
1: And so this is a a new way to buy art via these NFTs?
4: They're not entirely new. They've been around for a few years, since around 2017. They first shot to prominence around CryptoKitties, those cute digital cartoon cats that became a craze a few years ago.
1: But how does this work? There's this ledger that's kept that says, I jason palmer own a cool crypto kitty does does that mean no one else can have it what do i actually own
4: yes you're buying not the physical thing itself but you're buying a token that represents that thing and it is tricky because obviously anything that you represent digitally as a string of ones and zeros is capable of being copied infinitely and with perfect fidelity So there is a sort of Emperor's New Clothes point here, which is just what's the value of owning something that everyone else can consume perfectly and infinitely. And I guess the people who are buying NFTs, they do know this and accept it. They know that everyone else can consume their item.
1: Maybe I'm missing something here, but why not just pay the artist in, you know, regular money?
4: There's a lot of optimism that NFTs could mean just a a structurally much better deal for artists. And you get these crypto enthusiasts and they bemoan the legacy of the starving artist in a garret. And often their works sell for millions after their... and their families never benefit. So the big hope and and the sort of slightly utopian possibility here is that the, the NFTs linked to the blockchain make it easy to build in payments to artists each time their works are sold on. So not just when they sell the piece originally. So the tokens include code that can pay royalties on secondary sales And so what you have there is the idea of creators connecting with so-called true fans and kind of monetizing with their fans directly. So broadly, the really interesting thing for the future, I think, is that NFTs could mean that creators aren't so dependent on gatekeepers.
1: And we're talking about art here because of this Beeple sale, but you mentioned also CryptoKitties, for example. What else are NFTs being used for? How big is this market?
4: It's grown from about $40 million in sales in 2018 to we've had about $300 million of sales just in the past month or so as the the craze kind of reaches new heights. A lot of the value in the market is around the National Basketball Association selling clips of notable dunks, notable game moments. Kings of Leon, the rock band, selling a new album as NFT. One of the most talked about new NFTs is around tweets. So Jack Dorsey, the boss of Twitter, is selling his first tweet for a couple of million.
1: Okay, but in in your view, is this whole business a bubble?
4: I mean, there's lots of money sloshing around right now. So, yes, you've got a lot of classic signs of a, a bubble. And at the moment, it's really... You know tech experts, crypto experts, people who mostly know what they're doing. as well as the concerns about whether it's a bubble or whether there could be a crash in NFTs, you're probably going to get quite a bit of attention focusing on their carbon footprint. So non-fungible tokens do use the blockchain, and as we know, blockchain activities are really compute intensive and therefore really energy intensive.
1: But those concerns aside, do you think there's a real place for these things in the, in the digital art world?
4: I do. I think digital art loosely defined, you know, to include tweets, clips, you know, all of that kind of thing. I think it's definitely here to stay. I mean, that's because it's cool. It's of the moment. There are a few things that signal as interestingly that you really are a digital native. And over time, you can probably expect some of the best talent to migrate to digital away from only physical representation. And I think a lot of people would like to see artists and creators do well and see them get paid well in their lifetimes.
1: Tamsin, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.